Blog Talk Radio. discussion of the Kids Who Lose. This is Dr. Ross Green. I am delighted that you have both viewed the film and that you are joining us in on joining in with us on this online discussion. Um, we did not know that 16,500 people were going to register to watch the film. We have no idea how many people are um, joining in on this online discussion. Um, I know that we have seven or eight people who've called in already to participate in the discussion. And uh, I personally have reviewed uh, about 150 questions and comments that have been emailed in. I am um, very glad that you all are engaged on this you have many questions, um, way too many, that can be answered in an hour. And so if there's interest, we'll do this again. Because I and uh, the nonprofit Lies in the Balance and the Director of Advocacy at Lies in the Balance, Christine McIntyre, want to engage you on this issue so that we can bring about the changes that need to occur that have already occurred in some schools, but that need to occur in a great number of schools. So I'm glad you're joining us here. And um, without further ado, let's jump in. I'm going to, if you are calling in to the guest call-in number, which is 347 994-2981, and you're getting a busy signal, that's because we are probably already at our capacity through this format uh, for people to call into the program. There's an excellent chance we won't even get to all of the people who've called in already. So um, we appreciate your patience. Once again, we had no idea that there was going to be this much interest in this film. Um, Many of you have asked questions already. If you don't hear your question being read, uh, it's probably because there's another question that um, was similar enough to it that um, I knew that your question would be answered in my response to somebody else's question. Uh, Once again, begging the patience of those who have called in, we're going to get to you in the order in which your call has been received. Um, I'm going to start with uh, some questions and comments that were emailed in, and then we'll get to some callers as well. Here's the first one. Hello. Wonderful and eye-opening documentary. I've been a teacher for 35 years. While I try to differentiate and adapt activity and content for all my students, I believe that the push for inclusion without the proper training and resources is a big part of the problem. And while I believe all children have the right to a free 
and quality education. I also believe that by having children with severe behavior problems assigned to a regular classroom, this affects the rights of the other 29 students, as well as the rights of the teachers to a safe and enriching classroom environment. Teachers have a lot on their plates. Children with special needs need specially trained teachers. It is not fair nor pedagogical to have teachers balancing students' scores and learning, which by the way count for her paycheck, while at the same time trying to teach this special child and the rest of the students while trying to mitigate or soothe a child and prevent this from affecting others. I believe not every student needs to be included in the regular classroom. By the way, I'm not going to, that's the end of the uh, comments, um, I'm not going to be reading the names or identifying information of the people who wrote in. I think it's better to keep it anonymous. But let me just respond briefly. I think you've expressed um, some very important points here. Yes, by law, all children have the right to a free and quality education. And yes, there's no doubt that having children with behavioral challenges in a regular ed classroom, uh, the other 29 students are going to be affected, often because of the disruptions that are interrupting learning, often because they are scared. And of course, the classmates are not the only ones who are being affected. Teachers are being affected as well. Um, here's my hope. Stay on the line here because later on in the program, I don't really want to get to this right away, and there are some online resources that I'm going to point you to to help you know a lot more about uh, our ideas at Lives in the Balance for what we can be doing instead. Um, lots of free online resources. Um, but um, behaviorally challenging students, most of them, belong in special ed or placed out of their uh, schools into special programs. Um, and this is not me or the film blaming educators. I know that some people do have that reaction to the film. We are trying in the film to take a very uh, clear-eyed look at practices that are very common in schools in North America and in other parts of the world. Not blaming educators, quite frankly, for the way they've been trained or for the way that they may not have been trained. Why would we blame anybody for that? We are hoping that what people took from the film is empathy. And by the way, not only for the kids, but for the teachers who are working under often impossible circumstances as pointed out in the comments that I just read, classmates, they all deserve our empathy. Parents, all deserving of our empathy. The film was intended to cast light on what is still going on out there in too many places. Not to blame, but to cast light so that we can change things for the better. I don't think that many of the kids who are very behaviorally challenging need to be placed out. I think a very small minority of them need services that cannot be provided in a general education classroom. But as we will be discussing as this hour goes on, I think a lot of it 
Yes, kids are walking in the door with all kinds of problems. Yes, some of them are coming from family situations that are not ideal. Many are not coming from dysfunctional family situations. Um, some of it does have to do with what we are doing in some of our schools and how we've been trained. And as you'll hear me talking about more, a lot of how we've been trained, even though we may have been trained in a program that purports to be crisis prevention, a lot of what people have been trained to do is crisis management. And crisis management is reactive. I think a lot of these kids who are now in special education can be in general education, even though they are coming from family circumstances that are not ideal, if we are training people in different ways than we are often training them now. Um, one point that has to be made, inclusion was a great idea. As I said in the movie, inclusion was a great idea, except that we didn't really prepare people for what was coming. And that was a huge oversight. I'm going to do one more set of comments here and then turn to our first caller. Thank you for the free screening of the documentary film, The Kids We Lose. I really enjoyed the film. However, I feel that there were many aspects that were not discussed or brought up, such as environmental factors, sustaining the behaviors, additional or missed diagnoses, fidelity of medication use, and lack of collaboration between school and family, etc. While the documentary often targeted poor school interventions, it is important to note that the home environment plays a huge role in the success of school interventions. It appears that the film took a strong stance with regard to the use of disciplinary or punitive procedures. While I do not condone hitting, yelling, name-calling, or seclusion, I'm curious, how would you help these students with severe behavior and conduct issues without clear boundaries and consequences? How do we expect students to avoid prison if their environment does not provide clear and consistent responses to their behavior? Children need to have consequences for their behaviors. We cannot dismiss children from taking responsibility for their actions or behavior, whether or not they have a diagnosis of ADHD. ADHD does not necessarily explain or excuse poor behavior. ADHD is often a catch-all diagnosis for children with environmental dysfunction, abuse, and or conduct disorder. Let me comment on a few aspects of that, and then we'll turn to our first caller. Um, a few points. Um, I am not a very diagnostic mental health professional, so uh, you won't get any argument from me in your taking the stance that ADHD is often a catch-all diagnosis and that it does not necessarily explain and certainly doesn't excuse poor behavior. I think you're spot on with those points. Um, Medication can be a huge factor, both for good and for bad. And one of the greatest impediments in this entire scenario, and something we do not, and quite frankly, we couldn't include everything in the film. Uh, documentaries are 90 minutes. Um, that's how long documentaries are. The documentary, the primary goals of the documentary were to um, 
heightened awareness of practices that are still going on in many schools that are very counterproductive and archaic, and to point out how, and this is not the only factor by any stretch, practices at school can contribute to what is known as the school-to-prison pipeline. There's no question that poorly medicated students are going to do more poorly if they need medication, and the medication is either off because of which medication is being used or dose. There's no question that there are over-medicated kids whose behavior is actually being made worse by the medication regimen that they're on. So I agree with that point as well. The most interesting point here is that there's no doubt that the home environment can contribute to a child's difficulties. Here's the tough part of that picture. The school may not be able to do much about the home environment, but you still have the kid six hours a day, five days a week, nine months a year. You may not have access to what's going on at home, but you do have access to what happens to this student six hours a day, five days a week, nine months out of the year. One of the things I see sometimes happening is that educators get distracted by what's going on at home. And it doesn't mean that what's going on at home is irrelevant. The distraction is in the fact that you may not be able to do much about it. My recommendation, focus on the things you can do something about in six hours a day, five days a week, nine months of the year. In way too many situations, I've seen the conversation turn too quickly to something over which the school may not have much control, what's going on at home, sometimes to the detraction of what we could be doing when we have the kid six hours a day, five days a week, nine months of the year. One last point. There are two types of consequences what I would call natural uh, consequences and what I would call artificial adult-imposed unnatural consequences. Natural consequences, powerful and very persuasive. If you don't do your homework, you're going to get a poor grade on the test. If you don't share your toys with Billy, he's not going to want to play with you. Here's where you lose me. Behaviorally challenging kids are on the receiving end of a lot of natural consequences, which, by the way, once again, are very powerful and very persuasive. The fact that the kid is still behaviorally challenging tells us that those natural consequences are not getting the job done. Why on earth, if the natural consequences are not getting the job done, even though they're very powerful and persuasive. Why on earth would we think that adding more consequences, those of the unnatural, artificial, adult-imposed variety, detention, suspension, um, being held in from recess, would get the job done? I don't. Mm. We dole out tens of millions of detentions in American public schools every year. We dole out hundreds of thousands of expulsions 
millions of suspensions. We use corporal punishment in American public schools over 100,000 times every school year. Those are unnatural, adult-imposed consequences, and the fact that we are using them so often is proof positive that they are not getting the job done. Can you hold a kid responsible without using adult-imposed consequences? Absolutely. We're going to be talking about it soon, but you're just going to be getting a rough overview because we only got an hour, and I got web-based resources for you that you can explore so that I'm not feeling any great need to spend too much of our time during this hour on what you could be doing instead, but we will. Area code 952, you are on the air. Hold on, you're not on the air yet. Now you're on the air. Tell us what you're thinking. Hello, uh, my name is, all right, I'm Don't from Minnesota. Don't okay, change your name. Thank you. We missed, we missed That's it. Okay. Keep it anonymous. All right, I'm from Minnesota. I'm a 21 year vet teacher in elementary school. I'm also uh, the father of a 21 year old disabled uh, child. And I have a different perspective on things. And I respect all that you are trying to promote. And your movie was very uh, interesting. Um, you talk about a plan A and a plan B. And I would argue that there is not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach to, to children and that each child has his or her own unique talents or areas of growth that need to be addressed on an individual basis and that some children uh, may need a plan C approach and that I, I hear you saying that the plan A approach is something that you don't um, recommend or something that you don't um, would like uh, people to not use, but more on the plan B. Um, in the movie, you show the principal sitting down and talking to a young man at the end, the little boy. And that that's, that's wonderful. And I think we need to do more of that. But at the same time, the practical matter is um, I, I don't see how that works efficiently in a classroom. Um, you also mentioned a paraprofessional is about $26,000 a year and incarceration of over 150000 or more. Um, it would be wonderful to have more paraprofessionals to support us teachers, but um, I don't know. I just think I'm not sure your approach is, is practical or doable at all times in all circumstances. Um, I don't agree with, you know, doing any of the, the type of corporal punishment or the, the horrendous things we saw in the movie. But um, at the same time, we need to balance. I think a balanced approach is, is, is best being taken and, and just trying to meet the kids where they're at. But at the same time, sometimes you need to be direct, fair, but firm with students, not in any degrading manner, but, you know, you just need to be that way. So anyways, just one of the, share that thought with you and I thank you for your efforts and um, I'm enjoying listening to the conversation. Good, I appreciate your comments. Um, let me comment on your comments. Um, uh, one of the reasons, first of all, plan A, B and C, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the terminology, plan A is when you are imposing a solution on a kid. Plan B is when you're coming up with a solution together collaboratively. 
And plan C is when you are temporarily at least removing certain expectations because you know that a kid cannot reliably meet them. Um, I agree with much of what you said. Um, for some behaviorally challenging students, the reason they're getting set off is because we're still placing expectations on them that they cannot reliably meet. Placing expectations on students that they cannot reliably meet, and I understand why it happens. I understand the pressures. Um, I understand what it looks like to try to teach 25 or 30 kids um, in the same classroom. But I'm going to stick to what I'm saying. Placing expectations on students that they cannot reliably meet and it causes their challenging behavior. It causes us to intervene in ways that are counterproductive, including restraining, secluding, discipline referrals. Makes no sense whatsoever. Um, as it relates to the practicality piece, yes, well, first of all, the model has turned out to be quite practical when schools are willing to make some adjustments and not major adjustments, some adjustments. As I've always said, the adjustments tend to be in terms of lenses, how we are viewing these kids, timing, 99% of what we're doing with these kids should be proactive, not reactive. These are very predictable kids. The problems that are setting in motion, their challenging behaviors, are highly predictable. And practices. Um, most educators are still being trained in behavior modification strategies. Behavior in the collaborative and proactive solutions model that I originated, behavior is just a signal just the fever, just the means by which the kid is communicating something very important. I'm stuck. There are expectations I'm having difficulty meeting. That's all behavior is. And yet what we're spending a great deal of our time doing and putting a great deal of effort into teaching people how to do in many places still is simply how to modify that behavior. That's a structural issue that makes it seem like solving problems with students is impractical. Um, how we use time in our building is a practical issue that makes it seem like solving problems with students is impractical. Special ed referral processes, how we use our meeting time, the structure of the day, these are structural issues that make it seem like solving problems for students is impractical. The reason there are so many behaviorally challenging students is because we have been focused primarily on their behavior. We have not been focused primarily on the problems that are causing those behaviors. We have been often intervening in the heat of the moment reactively rather than proactively, and we have been trying to solve their problems unilaterally instead of collaboratively. If we keep doing things that way, the number of students will continue to grow and the number of problems that remain unsolved will continue to grow. What I always say to high school teachers is what's walking in your building is big piles of unsolved problems, problems that have yet to be solved, problems that are waiting to be solved. How did the pile get so big? Well, 
um, if the problems didn't get solved before the kid got to you, you're going to be dealing with a big pile of unsolved problems when the kid walks through your door. Some of those unsolved problems in high school are 10 years old. And I'm not talking about the chronological age of the kid. I'm talking about how long that kid's been having difficulty meeting that expectation. That's why it seems impractical. But many schools have tried to address the things that I just delineated. And all of a sudden, solving problems with students becomes very practical. As it relates to being firm, being firm is all well and good. You can't run a classroom without having expectations. Got to have expectations. And um, good for you to know what those expectations are. But if you're asking me if being firm with a student, just continuing to insist that the student meet an expectation is going to help that student meet that expectation, my answer would be no way, no how. Got to have expectations. If a student is having difficulty meeting them, you have a problem to solve. The reason there are so many students and so many problems to be solved is because that's not what we've been doing in too many places. Let me read another uh, email comment, and then we'll get to our next caller. Um, I was surprised by the idea in the film that zero tolerance policies don't work. Uh, the data are in on zero tolerance policies. They made things worse. I said that in the movie. Um, that's not surprising. All zero tolerance policies did was they had us make lists of signals, behaviors, that we don't want students to exhibit, and a rubric of consequences that were going to be applied to those behaviors, signals, if a student should exhibit them. How could that work? Consequences solve none of the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing us to use adult-imposed consequences. Zero tolerance was doomed from the beginning. As pointed out in the film, zero tolerance policies were a reaction to Columbine and have been implemented in an effort to help people feel safer. I don't know that many educators who feel safer these days. What we're often busy teaching educators to do these days is how to deal with an active shooter. And that is not a sign that educators feel safer. Area code 603, what's on your mind? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for bringing this situation to light. Um, as a parent of a student who struggled in the early elementary years, um, I really appreciate that people are talking about this now. I've been advocating for him desperately all the way through school um, because I feel like my job has become educating teachers about the why of his struggles and the how to manage them to prevent them because as you've said, everybody wants to be reactionary and not proactive in looking for solutions. Um, I'm also a para 
uh, with special needs students. And I've worked primarily in the middle school, uh, but this year now I've been in the elementary level. Um, and for me, I'm seeing what you, like you were saying with the high school kids, they're coming in with a big pile of stuff to be addressed. I'm seeing now why a lot of my middle school students that I've worked with in the past have these big piles of stuff that haven't been addressed. Um, I feel like at the younger level, they're putting Band-Aids on things and they're trying to refocus the kids and get them back into the classroom and just make it go away. They're not looking to solve the root of the problem, what's causing the behavior. Um, And I think, if the kids are given the skills to recognize in themselves what is causing their behavior, if they have the ability to verbalize it, that's ideal. Because then they can tell you, hey, ice coming on, I need to take a break or I need to regroup or I need to go someplace to change my focus. Um, But if they're just being told you need to take a break and go back to class, but not figuring out what's triggering this behavior, I think that's where we're running into the problem. Uh, As they get older, they become more aware of themselves, but they still don't understand why they can't control their behavior. Um, this past school year, I was injured by a student who is nonverbal, but within a few days, I had a good read on what his triggers were. And we saw that there was going to be an explosive behavior episode coming, so we knew. And I had already warned the other adults in the room to keep the other students away because I knew from experience with this student already that it can become very violent. Um, In attempting to restrain him, which is something that I was not looking forward to doing, but it's unfortunately what we were required to attempt first, um, I was injured, and subsequently three other adults were also injured by this student because we were attempting to force him to calm himself down the way we wanted him to. In my experience when I worked with him in the past, giving him time to have his meltdown and then try to self-talk and talk to him to calm him down verbally, just being very, you know, even keel and and even natured with him takes that edge off quicker and more effectively than anything we did to restrain him with no injury. So I think there's definitely needs to be a trend where we look at ways we can communicate with these kids verbally through these episodes instead of trying to physically control the episodes. I appreciate all of your comments. I think it's amazing that you are both the parents of a special needs child uh, and work with special needs kids. I think that that um, makes you um, unique, not, not unique because we have many people who emailed in saying that they were in the same kind of situation, but it gives you a fascinating perspective on things. Um, I also uh, hope that you will Sign up. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more to be a lives in the balance advocator because uh, we need your voice. We need uh, your, your expertise. Um, and so I want to talk about that just for a minute. Um, and I'm going to thank you for calling and appreciate what you've said to us. Um, I'd like you to sign up to be a lives in the balance advocator because lives in the balance is not only um, the hub of free resources on collaborative and proactive solutions. It's also advocating against uh, practices 
that we think are overly punitive, counterproductive, sometimes abusive. So if you are someone who has experience to share, if you want to get involved in our efforts, it's not going to cost you anything, uh, get on the Lives in the Balance website, go to the top nav bar to the advocacy section, and sign up to be an advocator. If you are looking for free resources on how to do things differently, restraint and seclusion occurs late in the process. Um, restraint and seclusion is a crisis management strategy. Even though many programs that refer to themselves as crisis prevention do teach people how to use restraint and seclusion. Oh, by the way, just in case you're sitting there saying, no, 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 no. Those programs also teach us how to de-escalate. De-escalating is late. I'm aware of no research telling us that restraint and seclusion keep us safer. And just because the holds that you saw in the video are not the kind of holds you were trained to use, um, that's all well and good. But whatever kind of hold you're using, you're late. You're in crisis management mode. Once you're de-escalating a kid, the unsolved problem that has set in motion the behaviors that are causing you to feel the need to de-escalate, and if your de-escalation efforts fail to restrain or seclude the kid, you're late. What's early? The unsolved problems that are causing that behavior in the first place. If you identify them proactively using an instrument that you will find on the website of my nonprofit, Lives in the Balance, Many of you are familiar with it already, but for those who are not, it's lives, L-I-V-E-S, in the balance, .org. And I shouldn't refer to it as my nonprofit. I founded it, but it doesn't make it mine. It's the nonprofit, Lives in the Balance. Um, you'll find on that website the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It should be the standard pre-referral triage instrument in our student assessment team meetings, our student study team meetings, it's free. Once you figure out what a kid's lagging skills are, once you figure out what a kid's unsolved problems are, this is a very predictable kid. Those problems can be solved proactively. As I'm frequently saying to the educators that I work with, I'm going to get you out of the heat of the moment. Everybody wants to know what to do in the heat of the moment. I want to know what are you going to do to keep yourself from being in the heat of the moment in the first place. In the CPS model, that's two things. Figure out what that kid's lagging skills are so that you have the right lenses are. Figure out what the kid's unsolved problems are so you, have, so you know what you're working on with the kid, solving those problems, and then start solving those problems collaboratively, and proactively. If you are somebody who is finding yourself in the position of having to use restraint and seclusion, Live in the Balance launched a free new, a new website recently, truecrisisprevention.org, truecrisisprevention.org, filled with free resources, 
on new lenses, new timing, new practices. Let me um, read another comment and then we'll turn to our next caller who is in area code 863. So heads up. Uh, the number of special education students who receive disciplinary action is alarming. Also, the salary of a special education aide of approximately $26,000 to the cost of maintaining an inmate at $148,000 a year is alarming. Are state governments aware of this in that they would be willing to increase school budgets for more aides? Um, well, I'm not actually positive that we need more aides. I, I agree that aides are paid less than it to have a kid in a um, juvenile detention or residential facility. There's no question about that. But I'm not positive that we need more aides. Um, I think it's tragic that aides are only earning $26,000 a year on average. But even at $26,000 a year, if the person has decided to become an aide, shouldn't we be training them on how to identify a kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems and on how to solve those problems collaboratively and proactively? Um, I think aides should be paid more money, but irrespective of what somebody is being paid, if they are working with behaviorally challenging kids, that's the training that's been lacking. That's what they need. Training is not very expensive. Crisis prevention programs um, eat up an enormous amount of school and special education budgets. Crisis management programs are teaching people to do the wrong thing. How we respond to these kids at school is a significant, but certainly not the only contributor that puts them on the school to prison pipeline. Let there be no doubt, for whatever reason, the kid is entering school with lagging skills and unsolved problems. That is the kid's contribution. The family may be making a contribution to the school to prison pipeline, but often that's not the case. The school is contributing to the school to prison pipeline as well by focusing on behaviors, the signal, instead of the problems that are causing the signals, by focusing on modifying behaviors instead of solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. That's the school's contribution. And by engaging in practices that are very counterproductive and archaic, we've got to face that while also acknowledging that many teachers find themselves in absolutely untenable, impossible circumstances, and that the frustration on the part of everybody, parents, teachers, kids, classmates, plenty of frustration to go around, plenty of empathy to go around without blaming anybody. It's interesting. I know that some educators felt that they were being blamed in the film. I actually thought that we bent over backwards to show tremendous empathy toward educators in the film. It's not educators, it's the practices and how people are being trained 
and the structures that make it almost impossible, but not impossible, to change things for the better. Area code 519, you seem to be next in line. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi, I was watching the film and I was, as I was watching, I was noticing that there's a lot of power struggles that are going on within that school system. I live in Canada. I've been a support staff for children with exceptionalities for 17 years. I was also an ABA and IBI therapist for children with autism. And then nine years ago, I became a parent to a child with challenging behaviors. And watching the film was really challenging me for just very challenging for me to watch and heartbreaking because I could see there were so many opportunities for those staff to stop and say, oh, I asked you to sit down. That seems like that's challenging for you or that makes you feel negative. Like, why are you feeling like this? What is something else that we could do to help you follow the rules in the classroom? And I just saw so many, like, power struggles where their staff was so engaged in, you must do exactly as I say. Instead of stopping and looking and saying, I asked you to do something that's causing a huge problem for you. And I think that if we had more empathy in the school to see that the way we're approaching kids or the things that we're asking them are causing them to be triggered, we could help them de-escalate in those things. I would have tons of students that would come out and they'd be so angry with their staff and I would say, I recognize you're angry why don't you come in my office and you can tell me about how angry you are in the hallway. I know this is not okay, but let's go in my room. And, and almost all the times, once they got out, whatever they were upset with, they were completely re-regulated again and able to go back into the classroom. It was just mind blowing to me to watch all of those power struggles that staff gets into because we feel like, well, I asked you to do something. You should do exactly what I say when I want, when I say it. And that's not how a lot of kids with challenging behaviors function. My son doesn't act like that. I thank you for your comments. I think that um, you've just underscored two things, um, our practices and our lenses, but also our timing. Um, we, don't want to, we don't want to have the kid get to the point where he's already escalated. Many people mm-hmm. think that it's the impossible dream. They think... They think students are going to get escalated. That's guaranteed. I'm um, quite certain that students are still going to sometimes get escalated, but I think we can cut that by about 99%. Mm-hmm. And I think that dealing with escalated students across the course of the school day and feeling unsafe takes a major toll on the ability of adults to be empathic. I think it's very Mm -hmm. hard to be empathic when you're scared. I think it's very hard to be empathic when you're feeling overwhelmed by the sheer task at hand. I also think it's very hard to be empathic when you're not exactly sure what to do and you're trying everything and it's still not working. People who often tell us that they've tried everything have yet to do two things. They have yet to figure out what that kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are. And they have yet to start solving those problems collaboratively and proactively. And um, while I'm not saying that that is the end-all and be-all, I am saying that that's usually what's been missing when people tell us that they've tried everything. Mm -hmm. I thank you for your call from Canada. Thank you. 
You bet. I'm going to forego some of the emails that we've received because I would um, like to spend the rest of our time together here in a bit more of a discussion. Area code 863, you are now on the air almost. What's on your mind? Yes. Uh, the reason why a lot of these students, I'm in a special education student, a teacher, and I have worked in alternative education as well. I understand about the school-to-prison pipeline. However, when you are told that you have to teach a child on the grade level that they're supposed to be on and not the grade level that they actually understand, it creates those problems. Now, when you go to high school, they have what they call intensive reading, intensive math. Why can't the elementary students have the same thing? Remedial ELA and remedial math. Because if you have a second grade student that's actually working on a first grade level, then a teacher should be able to go bike and review, reinforce those skills like we used to do years ago without having to be um, docked for not being on grade level if administration should walk in. You have a child that is behind one grade level, two grade levels. That child is not going to understand second grade work when they're working on a first grade level and they don't want to hold them back. So what do you do when you have a child like this because they go to act out? I don't know the material, so I might as well cut up and find an avenue to get out of here because the students are going to pick at me. So what do you do? You... Um you recognize that some very bad policies uh, have contributed to the situation that we're in now, and you give classroom teachers permission to meet kids where they're at. Now, technically, those, that, doing that has names. Sometimes we call that differentiated instruction. Sometimes we call that universal design. Sometimes we call that personalized learning. So the models for differentiating are there and have been there for a very long time, even though they are often referred to by different names. This mm -hmm. idea that you should meet a kid where he or she is at is mm -hmm. good teaching. And docking teachers, because they have students who are not at grade level, only pushes those teachers to insist that students meet expectations they cannot meet, and that causes challenging behavior, and that contributes to the school-to-prison pipeline, especially when that That's challenging true. behavior is viewed through the wrong lenses and when the wrong practices are used to deal with it. I thank you for your call. You are spot on. Let us turn to area code 205. What's, oh, don't talk yet. I haven't clicked the button yet. You are on the air. What's on your mind? 
area code 205. Going once, going twice. Area code 705, you are on the air. What's on your mind? Hi, Dr. Green. Thanks um, so much for uh, the documentary. I had a really uh, almost a visceral reaction to it. I'm a pediatrician, actually. I'm also in Canada. And, uh, in fact, just beside the area code from your second caller ago. So <laughs> maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's a trend. But, anyways, thank you. So as a pediatrician, I actually see kids sort of at the very end stages of problematic behavior at schools. And uh, kids are often... Uh, referred because they've been hitting, kicking, biting, yelling, throwing things, etc. And so by that time, the focus is a lot on diagnosis and medications. And um, uh, I, we talked about ADHD already, and I appreciate your previous comments about medications and diagnosis, uh, diagnosis especially, and how that can almost be a detraction or a um, reason not to address behaviors, but simply to give it a name. Um, ODD is another one, oppositional defiant disorder, one get, gets thrown at me a lot. And if you look at the definition for that, um, it, it really describes a child in very unflattering terms using words such as vindictive and uh, attention-seeking, et cetera. So, again, lenses uh, would need to change there. My, my question is really around how early we can start addressing unsolved problems. So, Instead of focusing on diagnosis in my practice now, I often will direct parents to think about it not in terms of a distant diagnosis, which really doesn't help very much from a practical point of view, but really say, what are the actual problems here? Um, so my question is, when, how early can you start that process? You mentioned uh, even starting it before into school. We know tantrum behaviors, et cetera, are very common in, in two-year-olds. Is that a good time to even start bringing up unsolved problems, or uh, can we start in a way more proactive way with kids even before they enter school, so that we we don't have to deal with it in school, so to speak? Uh, great questions. I think you start being responsive to the hand you've been dealt the minute the kid is born. If a kid is having difficulties during infancy, you're, you're a pediatrician, you know this. Yes. You start trying yeah. to figure out what's getting in the kid's way, and you start trying to help them. A tantrum in a two-year-old, you know, it's fascinating to me. We call it the terrible twos. But the terrible twos can be explained by the fact that up until a year and a half or two years old, you know, I've always said that these kids are born, kids are born knowing what they want. They have a mind. They're not a blank slate. They're not a lump of clay. Um, mm -hmm. But it's around the age of two where two very important developmental skills kick in that permit kids to go for it. Language, locomotion. Now, if adults deal with the fact that this kid now has language and locomotion and can go for, can, can shoot for what they want um, by being overly controlling, overly punitive, then they're going to end up calling to the terrible twos. Mm. But if instead they're trying to figure out what expectations is my two-year-old having difficulty meeting that are causing those tantrums, then the reality is that the age of two uh, demarcates the ideal time to start solving problems with that kid 
in the best way that you can. There are many two-year-olds, most quite frankly, two, two and a half, who have the wherewithal to participate in solving the problems that affect their lives. And the only thing standing in their way before two and a half or two is that they don't have the language processing skills to communicate through our preferred modality, words. You start being responsive to the hand you've been dealt the minute this kid pops out. You start meeting this kid where he or she is at the minute the kid pops out. And you start engaging kids on collaboratively and proactively solving the problems that affect their lives the minute that kid is able to participate in the process. And for most typically developing kids, that's two or two and a half. Mm -hmm. Thank you for calling in. We're going to try to get a few more calls in here before we have to stop. Thank you. Let's move on to area code 917. What's on your mind? Area code 917. Going once. Going twice. Area code 516. What's on your mind? Hi, Ross. Um, I wanted to comment about self-contained special education classrooms where all the students labeled with an emotional behavioral disorder are uh, basically put in the same room together. Uh, I should clarify, students with special education labeled under EBD or an emotional behavioral disorder. Uh, I like the documentary's message about how we need to address their lacking skills, uh, not their you know, uh, motivation, and yet they're being moved from place to place rather than addressing these skill gaps. So I've seen quite often in my job as a school psychologist where admin are putting pressure on the IEP teams to get the students who are engaging in unsafe behavior out of the school and into what is known as these self-contained classrooms where all the students with the EBD disability are in the same room together. And unsurprisingly, it can cause pure chaos. They can't keep the teachers in the rooms, meaning there's a lot of substitute teachers. And it's, it's not a good fit for the students. And I know the very first comment that started us off discussed how inclusion isn't a good fit for them. Uh, and I would like to add that, well, self-contained classrooms aren't a good fit either. So something's got to change to finally help accommodate these students. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, most of the problem solving that goes on in this model well, the ideal person to solve a problem with a kid is the person whose expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. That's um, usually the classroom teacher or the specialist or um, the bus driver, believe it or not. And yet we have structures in place where those people are sending kids to somebody else often the principal or assistant principal for the pound of flesh to be extracted, or the school psychologist, school social worker, school counselor um, for, for counseling to be done. Um, all of that leaves out the person whose expectation the kid was having difficulty meeting, but that's because of structures. We don't have structures in place that permit us to identify kids lagging skills and unsolved problems. And we're teaching people 
on how to manage behavior instead of on how to solve the problems that are causing those behaviors. Yes, I work with a lot of special ed classrooms. Boy, are those people just doing everything they possibly can to help these kids. Um, but we want to keep them out of the heat of the moment. Once again, I am aware of no data telling us that restraint and seclusion keep people safer. I'm aware of no data. Just lost another kid last week who died being restrained. Um, people get hurt when we're using restraint and seclusion, but even more important than that, restraint and seclusion are late. 70% of the kids who are restrained and secluded in American public schools are special education students, students with disabilities. Um, you're right, something's very broken. There are still gonna be kids who need a special education placement. Just a whole ton fewer that are being pushed in that direction now because quite frankly, we're not exactly sure what else to do. Well, I appreciate your call, by the way. At Lives in the Balance, we are pretty sure of what to do, and we're pretty sure that we're very good at helping people do it. So if you want more information about this model, besides the truecrisisprevention.org website, where everything is free, probably also want to get on a Lives in the Balance website, where everything is free, lives, L-I-V-E-S, in the balance, dot O-R-G, you will find just mammoth free resources on the Lives in the Balance website, um, podcasts, um, Facebook groups, um, as I mentioned earlier, advocacy, and free resources to help you know much more about this model than I can teach you in an hour. We do have a question here, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. Do you have further trainings in the CPS model? We actually have two trainings coming up. There's a one-day uh, virtual training coming up next Friday, and there's a two-day virtual training the following week. Um, the training is available for you, and we have priced it as cheaply as we possibly can because certainly during a pandemic, but quite frankly, the vibe that lies in the balance is to price things cheaply even when we're not in a pandemic. Um, those are available. You can find registration for those on the Lives in the Balance website. Unfortunately, we run out of time, but here's what I'm thinking. We still have like 15 people waiting to get on the phone, maybe 20. We still have about 25 emails that I didn't get to. Um, we're going to do this again. We just didn't know that so many people were going to be interested in and passionate about what we're trying to do here and about the film. Um, we're gonna do this again, and we will email all of you, so watch for it, to let you know when we're doing it again. In the meantime, once again, thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back at you soon, so we can continue the dialogue and engage you in the process of changing things to the better.